Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Steve Allman. I'm Cheryl Strayed. This is Dear Sugars. Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. So it's part three of our series on consent. We're working in the gray today, exploring workplace sexual harassment, and specifically consent in the professional arena. Have you ever been sexually harassed in the workplace? No, I, I have not. I have been uh, the object of attention from somebody, of a, a, a female colleague that I did not want, and I was persistent. But my general experience is that I've been privileged enough to live within a bubble where if I got unwanted attention, I felt I could pretty gracefully exit with no consequences. Right. And this is the big distinction I would make. It's not the unwanted attention. It's the consequences when you turn away from it or rebuff it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think I might have a slightly different view of that. I, I also had an experience like you describe. I um, worked in a middle school several years ago, and um, I was a, a counselor and a advocate working with girls. And, um, you know, I became friends with several of the teachers on the faculty. And one of the teachers was this really great guy who's, you know, not much older than me and kind of um, you know, just really into the project I was working on. And, and at first he was a friend, but pretty quickly I sensed that he was interested in me. And he was interested in me, even though he knew I was about to get married and in a, in a relationship, actually living with Brian already by then. And it was really just um, kind of unwanted attention. He would sort of show up in the school that he didn't necessarily need to be, but he was there because I was mm -hmm. there. And, um, you know, it really was, I guess, what the kind of thing you describe where, you know, he, he, there were no negative consequences that I can actually point to, but I felt uncomfortable. And right. I remember at the time thinking, this is how it begins. This could become a problem. And, you know, when this started to happen, I knew that I was about to actually go off to graduate school. So I was about to leave the job. And I remember feeling relieved by that. Like, okay, I can put up with this flirtation for right. the next couple of months. And, you know, I do think that this is in, in the outer territory of sexual harassment, where, you know, somebody does start to express their romantic or sexual interest in you, essentially in an environment that is inappropriate because you have to face that person every day. He's not just somebody I meet in a bar who I can say, you know what, thanks, but no thanks, I'm not interested. He's somebody I have to not only see every day, but really interact with because um, some of his students were the kids, you know, I that I was working with. So it did feel, I wouldn't characterize it as sexual harassment, but it felt like we were in the neighborhood. And also if it had continued, if, if I wasn't leaving that job, who knows what would have happened. And in fact, if we really look at it starkly, it's not unwanted attention. It's non-consensual attention. You don't have a choice. You can't be anywhere other than the office. You have to be. And he knows that. And he's going to show up. You don't have a choice. It's non-consensual. Yeah. 
And I remember thinking, okay, do I say to him, listen, I'm in a relationship. He knew that. And please stop flirting with me. Let's just keep our relationship entirely professional. Professional. And, you know, I, I didn't say that because it's uncomfortable to say that. Right. A part of what, you know, feels uncomfortable about the situation is my own sense of like, well, why didn't I say something? Which is, of course, what a lot of these letters we've been discussing, these women are disturbed by their own inability to speak up when to, to say what they were feeling. Yeah. And, and I would argue that part of the reason we wanted to talk about working in the gray is we do not have, I'm thinking about Jacqueline Friedman and, and what she essentially said to us is we do not have a language of consent to rely upon. And we certainly have struggled with it in the private sphere. And now you take it into the public sphere where the cudgel of public disapproval of a reputation being damaged of power that workers have over you, male workers or predatory workers of whatever gender. And you suddenly realize we really don't have a language of consent in the workplace. Right. So let's get to the first letter. Dear Sugars, I'm a 27-year-old woman with a good job, extraordinary friends, and a happy life. Despite this, I'm depressed and anxious. Here's why. Last year when I lived in a different city and I had a different job, I was sexually harassed at work. I didn't go a day at work without being sexually harassed by my all-male coworkers and bosses. I was harassed verbally and at times physically. I had no support. I felt scared and deeply alone. I wanted the harassment to stop but not badly enough to leave immediately. It was only after a year that I found another job. I reported the harassment to human resources when I left, but it's so ingrained in the organization, I doubt it changed anything. The experience has left me with all sorts of questions and feelings. Why didn't I leave sooner? Why didn't I report it sooner? Why did I feel so powerless? And why is it so hard to shake this experience? I'm now at a new job in a new city, and I still sometimes have panic attacks before work. I haven't been able to fully feel comfortable in my new work environment, even though it's vastly different and no one has come close to harassing me. I often have flashbacks of the harassment. I think constantly about how I could have reacted differently, better. To make it worse, I'm often asked about my former job, and the story I tell people is how wonderful it was and how much I learned. The truth is, it was one of the darkest and worst years of my life. I feel ashamed and at fault. I have a deep desire to be perfect, so I pretend it is. But this narrative is killing me. How can I be honest? How can I get over this and move on? Signed, Haunted. Wow. Haunted, I think you, you've started that process. This letter, which is a true accounting of working in a horrific workplace, is your first step. Um, and I just want to say one way of thinking about this that might be helpful is to think about the language of consent and think about every single comment that was made to you, every time a hand was laid upon your body that you did not want there, every single act that you experienced, which sounds like it was unremitting from all male coworkers. And each time somebody did something, remind yourself, I did not consent to that. Rather than you feeling powerless, they felt that they had power over you. I think that's important because the big trick of this kind of harassment in the workplace, the way it's legitimized, is that they count on 
the, and it's maybe the big trick of abuse in a broader sense, is that they count on the victim to blame themselves. Mm -hmm. They count on the fact that you will internalize a sense that the reason that you were targeted for that unwanted, non-consensual attention was because of some deficit in your character, some way you dress, some way you behaved, or just simply that you are a woman, that that lets you in for a certain kind of sexual bullying and harassment. And I think the central thing you can do is stop covering for them. And that begins by saying, not that was a wonderful year, but that is a toxic workplace. And even if I didn't say it then because I was too shocked and too back on my heels and too frankly traumatized, I mean, what your letter describes is trauma. And the reason it's haunted you is because you are just beginning to process it. And when you do those feelings of shame and putting yourself at fault, I think will start to dissipate. Because Cheryl, I've worked in sports departments, in newspapers, mm -hmm. um, and I know that, uh, that that sort of upper crust of misogyny misogyny is really sort of the crust that's over just a molten core of masculine doubt and insecurity. The reason that men bully women, especially in the workplace, is because men still have not accommodated to the idea that women can be their equals. Yeah, I think it's really important that you think about this notion of writing a new narrative for yourself haunted. And, and I would say in two ways. One is as Steve says, you know, stop telling the false story about your experience at this workplace. You have a right to tell people what's true about your experiences in your life. And what's true is this, this was a workplace that was incredibly hostile to you. And I think that it's really going to be deeply, deeply liberating for you to allow yourself that story. Yep. Right? You know, the other story is, of course, um, the one in which you kind of blame yourself for being sexually harassed. And as we've discussed on the, the previous two episodes, I hope that you've listened to them haunted because I think so much of what we've talked about in the two episodes that precede this one is really about this, this very murky territory of consent where bad things happen to us. I've told a range of stories now. I mean, it's kind of sad, right? Like I look back actually on just the stories that I've told over the course of these three episodes of the, the various things that have happened to me. And I'll tell you, I have like a few dozen more stories. Right. Um, so these are just, you know, for many women, um, really our lives are threaded with this kind of these interactions that are not really consensual, that we don't speak up against. And so then we take part of that uh, blame or responsibility. This question that you're haunted by is one that haunts me, that haunts uh, so many uh, people who have written to us and so many people who are listening. And that is, why didn't I do something sooner? Why did I let that happen? And, you know, I'll tell you why. Because everything you've been taught from day one in this culture and for generations <laughs> before you is that your voice is not powerful. You do not have the right to be the, the agent of your own body. You do not have the right to say, you can't talk to me that way. You can't touch me that way. You can't treat me that way. Right. This, this isn't a character flaw. This is a cultural, um, a very intentional dynamic that is created by a patriarchal culture. And so I really strongly encourage you to work very deeply and hard on letting go of that, that blame that you're holding about what happened to you on the job last year and placing it where it belongs with the people who perpetrated non-consensual touch and conversation with you in the workplace. Uh, I want to say, like, what we need to try to learn, along with the language of consent, is to 
reward people for telling the true story rather than allowing them to punish themselves for telling the false story. Well, and we don't just allow them to punish themselves. We often punish them, too. How dare you speak up? How dare you try to change the work culture? Right, and how did you dress and so forth. Haunted right now, what you're feeling is the belief that you will be punished if you tell the true story. And sadly enough, and we'll talk about this with our guests, the reality is in many workplaces that you are let in for trouble if you tell the true story about non-consensual attention from a coworker. We have to, as a culture, and I think Me Too is trying to say, we can't do it individually. We have to join together all the people who, are, who have been in a workplace or in a private space and have had non-consensual conduct inflicted upon them, sexual attention and behavior, have to stand up and rather than being in isolation, have to say, you know, this happened and I'm going to tell the true story of it. And if you attempt to punish me for that, I'm going to tell an even larger story. I'm not going to be quiet. The reason that Me Too feels vital is because everybody who suffered this kind of abuse is realizing they're, they're trying to isolate us. They're trying to create a situation where we feel we're alone and powerless up against the whole office. Yeah. So, Steve, we're going to discuss another letter after the break. Let's do it. Support for Dear Sugars comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com sugars today to get 10% off your first month. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. So we're back, and we're going to call our guest Saru Jayaraman. She's the co-founder and president of the Restaurant Opportunities Centers United and the director of the Food Labor Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley. She was listed in CNN's Top 10 Visionary Women and recognized as a champion of change by the White House in 2014. She authored Behind the Kitchen Door, and her most recent book is Forked, a new standard for American dining. Let's give her a call. Hi, this is Saru. Hi, Saru. This is Steve Allman. I'm here in the studio with Cheryl Strayed. Hi, Saru. Hi. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Dear Sugars. We'd love to hear uh, about you and how you got involved um, in this work. Sure. Um, so I'm an attorney and an organizer and a, an academic. And I uh, on 9-11, there was a restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center Tower 1 in New York City, and on that morning, uh, about 73 workers died in the restaurant. About 250 workers lost their jobs. 
And I was asked to start a little relief center in the aftermath of the tragedy for all the workers who lost their jobs. And what started as a little relief center has grown into a national organization over the last 16 years called Rock. And we work for better wages and working conditions in the restaurant industry. Wow. So we've been talking specifically about um, sexual misconduct and harassment. We've been talking about it through the lens of, of consent, though, um, and the idea that within the workplace, there's all kinds of non-consensual conduct that um, workers fear speaking about because of professional consequences. It's quite distinct from the private realm. Um, is that part of the work that you do as well? It's all of the work that I'm doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me back up and say the restaurant industry right now is the second largest and absolute fastest growing sector of the U.S. economy and one of the largest employers of women in the United States. It's almost 13 million workers. One in 11 American women works in this industry. One in two has worked in this industry at some point in their lifetime. One in two American women and yet it continues to be the absolute lowest paying employer in the United States. And a large part of the, the reason for that is that the minimum wage for tipped workers is still $2.13 an hour. At the federal level, it ranges between two thirteen and 7 in 43 states. And that means that a majority female workforce, 70% of tipped workers, workers who earn tips are women, and they're largely women who work at IHOP and Applebee's and Denny's and Olive Garden. So this is a majority female workforce living almost entirely on tips right. and having to tolerate all kinds of inappropriate customer behavior in order to feed their family almost entirely on tips. And our research shows they're actually even encouraged by managers, dress more sexy, show more cleavage, wear tighter clothing yeah. in order to make more money yep. in tips. But the key thing to note is that it actually isn't this way everywhere in the United States. So there are seven states that got rid of this system of having a lower wage for tipped workers 40 years ago. California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska all require the restaurant industry to pay a full wage to these women and let tips be on top of that. And these seven states have half the rate of sexual harassment as the 43 states with lower wages for tipped workers, and one-third the rate of managers telling women dress more sexy, show more cleavage, wear tighter clothing in order to make more money in tips. Because in these seven states, a woman gets a full wage from her boss. She doesn't have to put up with anything and everything from the customer. The manager right, knows right. she doesn't have to put up with everything. There's a changed power dynamic when a woman gets an actual livable wage from her boss rather than relying yeah, completely right. on the approval of customers. Well, that's, this is what's so important. And, you know, before we got on the phone with you, Sarah, we were talking about a letter from a woman uh, called herself Haunted. And I hope she's listening because what is distinct uh, in the workplace is there's an economic power relationship. And people might be saying, well, gee, what does uh, somebody's wages have to do with the issue of consent or sexual harassment? And your point is everything. When you are in a position where you're economically disempowered, people more powerful or even at the same level automatically have the power uh, or the implicit power uh, to essentially take food off of your family's table. And it's not just customers. When a woman relies on tips, every man in the restaurant has power over her. So the right. customers have power over her because that's how she feeds her family. 
But the kitchen staff knows that she relies on them producing the meal just as the customer wants it, just as the customer ordered to get the money in tips. The the customer is not tipping the kitchen. They're tipping her based on how she produces the meal. And so we've had so many workers tell us the kitchen staff makes me flash, show my breasts, or yeah. kiss them, or go into the walk-in freezer and and touch me in order to get the meal just so to please the customer. And the manager has power over her because he knows, you know, she relies on him to get the best shifts and the right. best tables to make the most money and tips. So because her income is so variable, it goes up and down, one hour to the next, one table to the next, one day to the next. Everybody has power over her, whereas if she got an actual wage from her boss, they wouldn't have that power. And that's so clear in the ways in which harassment is cut in those seven states. Yeah, right. I would love to read you uh, a a letter now that I think has everything to do with what Saru has been talking about, the relationship between harassment and and power in the workplace. Dear Sugars, I'm a 20-year-old female art student who recently moved to New York City with my boyfriend, We dated for a few months at the previous college we both attended, but after finishing the semester, we chose to move to New York City together and transferred other schools. Moving in with a partner of a few months is not as easy as I thought it would be. We fight a lot, especially because his parents are extremely wealthy and pay a majority of the rent, which my family and I can't afford. He's also accustomed to being spoiled. I've been growing increasingly frustrated by how much I'm expected to cater to him, cleaning, doing dishes, picking up after him. For the past six months, I've been tirelessly looking for a job to no avail. I felt guilty about being a burden on both of our families and, of course, on him. I finally found a job a week ago and was so excited to start supporting myself. Unfortunately, after my first day at work, it seems I may have to quit. Here's the problem. My new job is working as an assistant for a successful artist. When I first interviewed with him, I felt totally comfortable. He checked out when I looked at his Facebook, Instagram, and his website, but my first day of working for him painted a different picture. What began as harmless banter about working as a nude model soon led me to an uncomfortable position, half-naked on his studio floor. I've done nude modeling for other artists before, and entirely willingly. I have not regretted those experiences. This situation was different. I was coerced and manipulated into doing something I didn't want to do. I did it for the money, for the status of a good job working for a successful artist, for the fear of the consequences if I said no. To make matters worse, he made a comment about my breasts while we were working. He also told me about an incident in which a nude model he had hired to draw began masturbating in front of him. And he said that his wife couldn't know that his assistant was also modeling for him because she's too square and doesn't understand how artists work. In retrospect, I can see how he groomed me in the hours leading up to his request that I model for him, talking about how risky hiring models can be, saying he had a good feeling about me. The entire time he was trying to build trust and get me to sympathize and fraternize with him. After months of feeling badly about myself for not being able to get a job, I now feel badly for knowing that I only got the job because he wanted to see me naked. I'm so disgusted by his actions, particularly because he claims to support women and because so much of his work depicts strong women. It's disturbing to know that he is so blind to his own abuse of power, and it worries me that I don't know what he's capable of doing. 
My boyfriend, though somewhat sympathetic, advised me to quit the job and quit spending so much mental energy on it, but part of me feels like I need to keep the job. Sugars, do I keep working until something potentially worse happens, or do I leave and face even more arguments with my boyfriend and parents because I don't have a job? Signed, stuck between a perv and a hard place. Wow. (laughs) So very, um, you know, what what I was about to say is very common scenario. I have to say one of the saddest things to me about these stories is that, you know, I think when you're living it, you feel so alone and like this is only happening to you. But I want to say to you, Stuck, uh, this feels very familiar to me and I think to Saru as well. Um, What are your thoughts, Saru? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's a very, very common situation we find, especially, I mean, all women, it's particularly distressing um, when young women face these things as their first work experience. You know, the restaurant industry, for example, is the first job for most women in America in high school, college, or graduate school. This is how they learn what's acceptable and tolerable in the workplace. And like stuck, they are stuck. This is their first exposure to the world of work. This is what how they learn what's acceptable and tolerable. So we encourage all women, and this is what I would encourage to stuck as well, to find support. Like in our case, we're able to provide support to restaurant workers who are in a similar situation, feeling like they can't speak up for fear of losing their job, um, for fear of losing income, for retaliation of any kind. What she's experiencing absolutely is sexual harassment. Um, it's illegal. Um, she has the right to speak up, to, to complain, even to sue. Those things are very difficult, but with support from organizations like ours, it can be done. You know, there are many options in, in, in achieving your rights. It could be very private and confidential. It could be a public uh, activity. It could be litigation. It could be mediation. There's so many different ways to go about uh, making sure your rights are vindicated. And there are organizations for women uh, that, you know, like RAIN is a sexual abuse uh, hotline for women like stuff to call regardless of industry to share what's going on. Do you remember what RAIN stands for, Saru? Uh, It's Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network. Um, It's the largest anti-sexual violence um, hotline. So people can call and get advice. But if there, you know, there are many worker organizations as well for people in particular uh, industries. And I think like you said, the number one thing to do is know you're not alone, reach out and seek support, know that you have rights. Um, and particularly our hope is to let young women know this is not the way work should be. This is not right. the no. culture that, of the industry. So I have had so many senators and actresses and lawyers tell me I've been sexually harassed more recently in my career. I didn't do anything about it because it was never as bad as it was when I was a young woman working right. in restaurants. In the re- yeah, right. no, there's no question. Which and our industry sets the standard. And well, I think that one of the things I want to say to Stuck, I hope you hear that advice to reach out. And and I think that it, that's going to be especially um, scary and difficult for you because you do have a job where you are essentially alone with this guy. You know, you are this artist assistant. It seems almost like a personal relationship rather than a job. And I think that that puts you even in more danger. Um, You are being sexually harassed. It will only get worse um, and it will only get um, more complicated if you don't speak up now and really demand that this, you know, be corrected. 
as we're discussing this, I'm sort of thinking, if I were stuck listening to our conversation right now, one of the questions I would be asking myself is this. Okay, guys, you know, I hear you about like calling and reporting this and reaching out for support and doing all this stuff, but I've worked for this guy for one day. Um, it, it's g- going to be so much more trouble um, to do all of that than it is just to sort of call him up and quit and look for something else. Um, and I think that a yeah. lot of women have done that, frankly. You know, I certainly have done that when I worked in, uh, you know, in my 20s. There was one job where I was, you know, that my boss was a predator and I just quit. Um, because the fact of the matter was, and I think this is what happens with a lot of women who are not in a union or in other, in other ways sort of protected by the group, um, such as Stuck. She's just this 20-year-old art student who got a job with a successful artist. Right. And, you know, her boyfriend's advice is quit the job and, um, you know, yeah. stop thinking about it. Don't give it your mental energy. Why shouldn't she do that? Yeah, I, I would say stuff understandably, not every woman, not every person is going to be able or want to stand up and, and take action. Um, what I do think is still important is finding that community of support of women so that you at least know your options, know your rights. In the next workplace you go to, you know what options you have and what rights you have, even if you don't t- choose to take it up in this particular situation, because what you've experienced is not normal or acceptable in the workplace. But not everybody has that option. This is a pervasive culture across many industries and across many employers. So you find these situations because harassment is not about individual actions. It's about systemic situations of structural power, the power that Mm -hmm, women have in the workplace or for stuck getting up and leaving one artist and going to another male artist isn't going to change the fact that there's still an incredible imbalance of power in the art world between men and women. And that there's so much more predominance of male artists over female artists and a lack of respect for women. Those are the things that need to change systemically for us to be able to actually say, I'm just going to leave this employer and go to another employer to actually have an impact. And so way beyond leaving one employer and going to another. We need we need women to feel supported. We need them to be able to stand up for themselves. And we need to change laws and policies that create these systems in the first place. Amen to that. I will say to Stuck that there is another possibility, which is one that we'll would be, I think, quite difficult, but it is a sort of middle path. And that path is that you say to your employer, who you've worked for for one day, here is what this job is, as I understand it, and legally, here's what it is. And what happened on my first day of work is not acceptable to me. I want to be your assistant, not a nude model for you, not your confessor of your wife's anxieties or your ambitions or ideas about how you get to treat women because you're an artist. And obviously, you would want to use language that was pretty neutral and pretty direct and simple. It is possible to say to this man, I am your assistant, not a nude model. And what happened yesterday was, to my mind, I felt coerced and manipulated, and I don't consent to it. I want to work for you. I want to do the work that you hired me to do, but that does not involve these behaviors, which for me are non-consensual. He then has the choice of firing you, and he might choose to do that. Uh, But my fear is that if you don't do that and you return to that workplace or leave without saying anything to him, you'll wind up feeling like Haunted, our first letter writer, who was in a workplace where she was unremittingly harassed 
And I think she's plagued by the feeling that she did not speak up and say to the people who harassed her, I do not consent to this. This is not part of my job description. It's not allowed. Yeah, and one thing I want to add, you know, we keep coming back to the meaning of consent because, of course, one of the weapons used against women throughout all time is, well, did she say no? You know, she took off her shirt. I asked her if she'd do it and she did it. That's consent to a lot of people. But what we've learned about sexual harassment in the workplace and elsewhere is that consent is a lot more complicated than that. And that the ways in which this employer used his Male privilege, economic power, age, his success, his standing, all of those things very subtly in some cases and very overtly in others against you, um, all combine together to really equal not anything that resembles consent, but actually a very non-consensual situation that you found yourself in on the job. Yeah, and I would argue, in fact, if we're really going to logically follow that out, that that, a, a version of that is existing in your private relationship, your romantic relationship with your boyfriend. I I think there's a kind of soft power that's being exerted on you that you're both aware of, but neither of you are speaking about, where because his parents underwrite the apartment, the opportunity to be in this world of New York City uh, to pursue art, you have to end up basically being the maid in the relationship. And we could say it very simply, your boyfriend sounds spoiled. And this guy, by virtue of the way that we've arranged power in this culture, the patriarchy has arranged power, this successful artist is also spoiled. He believes that he has a right when he hires a quote-unquote assistant to make comments and work the situation so that he can see you naked and then comment on your body. He's doing that in private, and then he can present to the world that what he does is empower women by presenting images of strong women. And that's a con. The reason that the allegations against powerful men have been so resonant is because it's a public uh, morality play in which powerful men who've been privileged, who have forced women to absorb their bad behavior, are suddenly being held to account. And other men, like me, for instance, are having to examine my own behavior and be a little bit frightened about the ways in which I might have behaved in ways that were destructive because I had the power to do that and it was invisible to me. You are dealing with an artist who depicts strong women. I see that if you reached out, and again, I'm not suggesting you have to do this, but I think the Me Too movement has given us a model for the fact that you can do this. If you reached out to other women and tried to figure out whether there were other women who were put in the same circumstance you were put in, and enough of you came together and said, listen, media outlet, we have a story to tell about an artist who says publicly that he supports women and strong women, and privately he coerces them and manipulates them and sexually harasses them. I know that's a story that lots of people would read, and it would send the larger message, not only that he's going to be held to account, but that the culture of male power is going to start to be held to account in this particular world, as it has been now in Hollywood, to some extent in the political realm and so forth. I think a big part of what's going on here is that men, both uh, Seth's boyfriend and your employer, both of them, uh, have not until now faced any consequences for this kind of behavior. There have been no consequences until this moment, until Me Too, until women started speaking up, and there have been consequences. I mean, that's why we're having this conversation at all. And so if we do just quit jobs and move on and, and let these things happen, then there continue to be no consequences 
forever. It's perpetuated. This man will continue to think there's no right. problem with me propositioning an assistant in this way. And so we all are collectively responsible for making sure that men understand there are consequences and that we're able to collectively create those consequences. No one woman should be responsible for creating them on her own. I mean, the laws have existed for many, many years that make this behavior illegal, but clearly men do not feel it is illegal because there are no consequences. And so we need to make it clear that time is up. Time's up. We will not put up with this behavior any longer. And you're part of that, Stuck. You're part of that movement. So what I encourage you to do, Stuck, is join hands with us. Step into it. Uh, we have your backs. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for being our guest on Dear Sugars. We really enjoyed talking to you, Saru. And admire the work you're doing greatly. Thank you so much. Thank you. Steve, in closing, I want to tell you this story with all this talk about working in the restaurant industry. Mm -hmm. Actually, I was a waitress for many years, and so was my mom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of my job was to be sexually appealing. And, and that sounds maybe more crass than it was, you know, but it was very clear that, you know, part of the reason I got several of the jobs I got when I was in my 20s and early 30s as a waitress was that, you know, I was this nice young woman and who was willing to be kind of charming and flirty with customers, yep. not in an over-the-top way, but there's no question that an aspect of the service industry, there are a lot of jobs that you are, to some degree, playing up your sexuality. Right. And this usually, you know, didn't extend beyond a kind of flirtation that I was comfortable with. But, you know, of course, several times I did experience sexual harassment at the hands of customers. Um, usually it was kind of uncomfortable. And then, you know, I'd be like, hey, buddy, watch it. And they'd leave. One time, uh, however, it did get out of hand. And it has actually a kind of powerful and happy ending because I did speak up because I didn't consent to that treatment. Mm -hmm. It was three men that were visiting Portland and mm -hmm. they'd come into the restaurant where I worked. And, you know, they began with this kind of nice flirtation the stakes were raised. Every time I'd come back to the table, it got more and more crass and more and more uncomfortable and unacceptable. Mm. Uh, and it really escalated to the point that when I offered them the dessert menu, they said that they wanted me. And they said they wanted me in really inappropriate terms. They said what they wanted to do with me. And they, yeah. they really propositioned me. And I went to my manager, who was a man, and I told him what the men had said to me. And he did not even hesitate. And this was not a, a cheap restaurant. This is, a, this is an expensive restaurant. He walked yeah. right up to their table and he said, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us tonight. We're now going to ask you to leave. We'll take care of your bill. We ask that you stand up right now and walk out the door. Wow. And they were so startled and so taken aback right. that they were just being calmly shown the door. And they, it took them a minute to even believe that this was happening. Yep. And they even then, I think, in a sort of stumbling, bumbling way, tried to pay. And my manager said, no, leave. And they left. And the restaurant comped those dinners. And my manager said, do you need a break? Are you OK? Wow. And I was so surprised that he had stood up for me, 
you know, there was this part of me that thought, oh, he'd be like, well, were you flirting with them? Or, you know, oh, just, you know, be, be nice and laugh and get him out. He, he just drew the line. And, and that was really empowering to me. It was, it's a, so sometimes I think we can, you know, have really good experiences um, in the workplace when everyone around us, when people like our managers actually have a plan. They know how to respond and they to have your, they a have, situation like this. And they have your back, but it seems utterly shocking because that assumption of if I say anything, I'm either not going to be believed or I'm going to be punished professionally because it hurts the business's bottom line mm-hmm. is essentially, I think, the default setting of the workplace. Um, there are so many places where we basically have the culture telling us what your boyfriend stuck is telling you, which is stop spending so much mental energy on it. Uh, it, that is the force of suppression. Stop thinking about it. Stop mm-hmm. thinking about the language of consent and whether you wanted it or not. Just put it away. Put it in a drawer. And that drawer, thankfully, is now overflowing. And what's inside that drawer is the truth of how it feels when something non-consensual happens. And we have heard in every single letter that when people either are disappeared or silenced by the culture, by somebody in their life, and most complicated way, by themselves... It is disastrous. It's like a time bomb that is going to go off inside of us at some point. We thank all of you listeners who wrote to us about this issue and about consent. Um, We covered a range of letters over these past three episodes, but there were many more in our inbox. And we want you to know we heard you and we're going to keep exploring this issue. We're going to keep digging deeper into this and so much else on Dear Sugars. Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR. Our producer is Alexandra Lee Young. Our editor and managing producer is Larissa Anderson. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. And our editorial director is Samantha Hennig. We recorded this show at Talkback Sound and Visual in Portland, Oregon, with our engineer, Josh Millman. Our mix engineer is Brad Fisher. Our theme music is by Wonderly, with vocals by Liz Weiss. Please find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. You can send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's dearsugars, plural, at nytimes.com. Or leave us a voicemail on our hotline at 929 399 8477. And please check out our column, The Sweet Spot, at nytimes.com slash the sweet spot. 